Just past 7 o'clock, and we love Monday nights because it's time for Ira on Sports. 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, not in the studio again, but good reason you took in plenty of baseball over the past week. I took in plenty of baseball, and I was hoping to get another set because the choice was, do I go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? I was at the games, three games yet last week at Dodger Stadium. And then do I go back to see me Penn State, Illinois, uh, where Penn State was favored by 25 points, did not think it would be a close game, let alone a nine-overtime game. And then if the Dodgers win the World they get back to the World Series, they fly back to L.A. So I said, you know, I'll just stay in L.A. this weekend, maybe catch the Rams game, uh, but stay in L.A. But uh, there is no World Series in Los Angeles, um, and the team with all the talent and the pitchers and this and the payroll did not make it, and the Braves won. Uh, but uh, this week I'll, I'll still be going Saturday to Penn State, Ohio State, and Steelers. Uh, versus Cleveland on Sunday, so I'm excited for a good week. But uh, just be, let's probably just watch the World Series here and uh, not go to those games. But uh, uh, just unfortunately, that it would have been great to be at Dodger Stadium for uh, another World Series. Yeah, no, of course it would. And you know, the the national media has been kind of picking on LA fans, you know, for the past week or so, saying they're not true fans. A lot of transplants getting there late. We know that that's not really the case, but what, what's the feeling there now? I mean, the success of that city, uh, basically across every sport, has been fantastic for the past couple of years. But I got to imagine they're still really bummed out having the Dodgers bow out early. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make excuses for the Dodgers because, but again, where the teams in the playoffs as many years as they have been in, that there is some of that malaise that sets in. I mean, they lost like six years ago to the, the championship series to the Cubs. They lost the World Series to the Astros in seven, lost to the Boston in five, and then lost to Washington in the NLDS. Now, last year they won the World Series with no fans. So people expect it. But, yeah, I noticed they were, not, when they were down 2-0 and then 3-1 in games. You're not going to see the fans at the games. Another thing is the games start because of the West Coast times. The games are starting at 5 o'clock, which makes it really difficult to get there in terms of the traffic and everything. And I was leaving you know, at 1 o'clock. It's an all-day affair to go to a baseball game if you're going to Dodger Stadium in the middle of the day like that. But that's no excuse. I mean, the fans should still be there. They should fill it up and everything. But I can't criticize Dodger fans because they leave. They get 50,000 fans for the Pirates in, like, June. So it's just weird. And, and the thing is, you, they, when you have the playoffs, the ticket prices are not set by the team. They're set by the league, and they're ridiculous, ridiculously high. And there's a lot of bad seats at Dodger Stadium. They're high, and they're, they charge a lot because the league sets that, that pricing in. So you don't sell. You can't do the season ticket uh, things for the group sales and all the little teams, players, for the little leagues and stuff that take those tickets up. So for a team that is by far, every year in and year out, is by far the number one team in attendance, you'll say, oh, there's empty seats in the playoffs. It's empty seats because there's a lot of other reasons for it. But, yeah, you would wish there were more Dodger fans there. But uh, Dodger fans are great. I mean, they're the best baseball fans in the United States because they, they, there's more of them that go to a game every game. Uh, we're going to have Seth Wickersham. He's a, a fantastic uh, sports uh, writer and author joining us uh, right about 7.35, Ira. Yeah, I'm so pumped to, to interview him. It's called It's Better to Be Feared. Uh, he wrote the book that everyone is talking about, about Brady, Belichick, and Kraft, uh, about the whole end of the Patriots dynasty. He knows all the – everyone talked to him. He knows every player in, in terms of the people participants in this. And they interviewed ex-assistant coaches, ex-trainers, ex-this. Uh, it's a well – Research book is a writer in Boston, and I'm, I read the book is tremendous and so much. If there's anyone who knows about this whole situation with the whole breakup of Brady Belichick and the and Brady going to Tampa Bay, it's it's sad. So I'm so glad to have him on the show. So let's talk about uh, what you've been up to. Um, you know, we left it off with you'd uh, been going to as many games at Dodger Stadium as you could, and you picked it right back up uh, going to Game Three. Yeah, Game Three was crazy. First of all, it's an epic game, and then second of all, I was sitting behind. The Dodger dugout, where the on-deck circle is, and to my left is Magic Johnson. He's like three seats in front of me. And then Bob Myers is the general manager of the Golden State Warriors is in front of me. And then to my right, like about six seats, was Rob Lowe, so who was into the game. I mean, he was taking pictures with his rally cap on. He was not hobnobbing, no entourage. And I think he brought his son to the game, and they were having a good old time. But uh, Magic was nervous. He had Magic left early in the game. I thought, oh, my gosh, Magic's leaving in the game. And he had to go actually do the Lakers. It was opening night for the Lakers. And then Billy Jean King was right there. So it was pretty cool to be in that section. And then I've been sitting on the other side. 
uh, in the dugout club, which I totally love at Dodger Stadium. This was on the side where, uh, behind the Dodger on deck circle. So that was pretty cool to sit there. And, and what was crazy about it is I had a fantasy basketball draft at the same time. So the basketball draft is going on. I have my papers start to the game. And here I have Magic. Who knows more about basketball than Magic to my left? And then Bob Myers, the GM of, <laughs> of the Golden State Warriors. I mean, I could like, you know, ask them questions that I would get. I'm sure they were focused more on worrying about my stupid fantasy basketball thing, which I drafted a terrible team. But the, uh, but it, 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 that, that game three was crazy because it was boring. Uh, they, uh, Morton versus Bueller, uh, in, in terms of Charlie Morton, who was a great playoff pitcher. It seems like every team he goes on, it's, it's Charlie Morton. You put him on, you put him on the pirate, back to the pirates. He was a pirate pitcher. He pitched the pirates, make the playoffs. And he always finds his way into the playoffs, always pitching big games against Walker Bueller. And, uh, Seager hit a home run to, to give the Dodgers a 2-0 lead. And then for six innings, the Dodgers did nothing. Just total out, did absolutely nothing. And it was like one of those games where people were even leaving. It was, the score was, uh, the Braves scored four, four runs in the fourth, one in the fifth, made it 5-2. Bueller's out of the game. Everything, everybody thinks the game's going to be over because the Dodgers can't hit. They can't get a man up on base. Bonnie A. Smith singles, Turner, Dustin Turner singles, and then Cody Bellinger, who has had one of the worst two years you can imagine for a baseball player. Uh, and when they put up his, his stats on the wall, and the, like for the season, he hit 165. I mean, the Mendoza line is not Jessica Mendoza, but Mary Mendoza is, uh, is 200. He hit 165 at a terrible year. But he comes up and hits a three-run home run. Absolutely. The place, he just went from quiet to as loud as you can imagine. Everything. I, it, and it lasted like five minutes. People were screaming, ties up, uh, then Taylor singled, and then Betts doubled to make it 6-5. And then you go back to the top of the ninth, and Kenley Gantzik comes in and closes it out. And suddenly the, 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 the Dodgers, who were down 2-0, they totally, of course, blew game two with this, with them putting Urias in the bullpen. We talked about that last week. And then they're suddenly back at 2-1 in the series, and, and Dodger fans and, and me had hoped that uh, you know, now, now the Dodgers could take back the series. All right, let's go to uh, game four here. Dodgers needed to keep the momentum going and weren't able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, again, this you. The, it was, the score was the score was nine two. Dodgers got uh, the Braves from destroy the Dodgers, go up three one. But the problem was Urias. Urias starts the game. Now the, what happened is remember in game two they used him in the bullpen. He gave up those runs. They were up four two in the eighth inning. They bring him in instead of keeping trying to enter any of the other bullpen guy people they could have put in. They hurt his confidence. Then they bring him back. He's tired of this game. And what does he do? He gives up in the second inning a home run to Rosario. Um, another home run to Duvall, home run to Freeman, more runs. It was just a disaster. Right? And Roberts will take him out. Roberts, who will take anyone out. Like, I once saw what Wood pitching almost a no-hitter. He gave an in- infield single. Oh, take the person out. What, Roberts takes starters out left and right. Just let Urias in the game. I mean, didn't even care. It's not like, I felt like it was a spring training game, and Urias needed to get his number of pitches in. Makes no sense. I, I just... I can't understand what Dave Roberts does. I, I just don't understand anything of it, and it was ridiculous. But Rosario was funny because when I was sitting on the on-deck circle, when he came up to bat, the first time he came up, he, I had two probably 11-year-old, 12-year-old kids sitting there front row, and he goes, hi, guys. <laughs> and uh, the next time he goes, the guy say hi again every time he came up. And then Dansby Swanson starts talking to the kids. And he said, these are Dodger fans. Like, they're decked and Dodger fans. These kids, again, is like, hey, do you play? Do you play? Where do you play? What position do you have? How do you do in school? Like, the game is going on. And Swanson is just talking like it's a spring <laughs> training game, you know, or like a minor league. I don't even think minor league baseball players talk like that. I go to see that. But it was neat to be that close and talking, talking to them. But it was just a terrible game. I mean, by the ninth inning, everybody was gone. Uh, the Braves had won 9-2. And setting up now, they're down 3-1, going to game five. And, but the Dodgers last year were down 3-1, down 2-0, down 3-1, and came back and won. Now, that was on a neutral site. And uh, the first, in game five, the first beginning of the game, Joe Kelly gives up a two-run home run to Freeman. Then he gets hurt. So you're like, this is going to be a disaster. But then after that, the Braves got three hits the rest of the game. The Dodgers used eight pitchers. And then you had the Chris Taylor show of all shows between A.J. Pollock, who had two home runs. And Chris, I mean, that's sort of what is missed by the whole Chris Taylor three home run. Uh, he's the 11th person to ever hit three home runs in a, in a playoff game and uh, six RBIs. But A.J. Pollock had also had two home runs. Uh, they went up 11-2. to two. I mean, won the game with 11-2 to two and just a, a total a demolition of, uh, of the Braves. Yeah, and they really needed that. I mean, obviously more than just to keep themselves alive, but also to 
give yourself some kind of confidence going back to Atlanta. Um, but it wasn't going to be enough, Ira, and uh, they were able to close them out in Game 6. Yeah, I mean, Scherzer was supposed to start. Max Scherzer, he's, he, when you first heard that he wasn't going to pitch, well, then you go back to the whole problem they had by they, they used him in the bull. They used him in game one with when he probably could have given him an extra day of rest. Using him in the giant series in the fifth game, that was a met in terms of closing that game out. And Scherzer can't go. Now, he did that when he was with the Nationals. He pushed his start back, and it worked. For them, they actually uh, he was able to push it back one 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 day, and he won that start. But in this case, he couldn't go for Game Six. Walker Buehler starts on short notice. Uh, they they get a run in the first rally, hit a home run, and then Bellinger tied at one one. But uh, in the fourth inning, Rosario again uh, three run home run, made it four one. And the seventh inning, the Dodgers had their chance. I mean, AJ Pollock doubled the left, uh, driving in Taylor. So the, and and uh, Bellinger went to third. So they've been on second and third and no outs in the seventh inning, down uh, 4-2. And Pujols, um, Sots, Soros, and Betts all came to bat and all struck out. And that was the game <laughs> right there um, and lose. I mean, it was a bad loss in terms of the end of the whole season. The Dodgers win 106 games, and they don't even make it to the World Series. Uh, just, a, just a mess. I mean, the, the Braves pitching, what I, from my point of view, the Braves – I, they, they're hip hitters, but they're not. They're missing their star player. Ronald Acuna Jr. is hurt. Solar, their other star who had was out for COVID, so they're missing two of their best pitch hitters. And their pitching staff has been horrendous. They only won 88 games this year for good reason. The pitching staff is bad, and the Dodgers just couldn't take advantage of it. With all these great hitters, the Dodgers have. I know with the injuries, I know things are tired, but Roberts' inability to use the best bullpen in baseball. Uh, just there was, I think it was a disgrace that they lost to the Braves. They were a better team than the Braves. They should have won at least game two and uh, at least set up a game seven. But really, you know, I went through the whole list of where they've lost. And, and Roberts saved his job by winning the World Series last year. But I'd fire him this year, too. I don't care if he won 106 games. I don't understand his managing. <laughs> I think it's terrible. And I think he wasted talent. And I, I think he should be fired. But now he's, his, his contract is up. So they can actually let him go. So he's, he's asking for a contract extension. We'll see if the, the Dodgers bring Dave Roberts back as manager. Yeah, I mean, he's won, he's won it all before. Like you said, 106 games. But it wouldn't be crazy for me to let him go. I mean, you would think that a lot of people could win 100 games with this roster, Ira. And we've seen the inefficiencies and the, and the bad calls that he makes that might be holding this team back. You've been you know, uh, campaigning for, for Roberts to be out for a while. And I think we might see it. Well, I don't know. Well, that's the, the, just... It's just the pitching. He just the series did not have. They're a better team than the Braves. And the decision, the game two, when you're up four two, and you have Urias who was one twenty games as a starter. Why you need to bring him in when you had Trinan, who every time I saw Trinan, I mean he was getting everyone else. Gatterall throws the ball one hundred five miles an hour. I mean they literally have five more bullpen pitchers. I mean they bring Vessia, they bring bullpen pitchers in. Everybody's good. Like their entire bullpen is amazing. No, I don't remember a team with this, like a bullpen like this. And then you have to bring a starter in. I mean, that's what the Nationals did when they were using Corbin, Strasburg, and Scherzer, and they were all sort of relieving for each other. When you have no bullpen, that's when you use a starter. But you use starters when you have, and then you have a closer with Ken Lake Jansen who's actually closing great. Like I don't understand how they lost. I just, it's just ridiculous. And the lack of timely hitting from the Seegers and the Bats in the top of the order, and the and not playing Pollock. You know, he did not play Pollock first two, three games because of the whole platooning thing. Uh, it's just everything didn't make any sense. And uh, uh, just a, I know, and they're going to say injuries and this and that and all this, but remember, they're able to lose a Trevor Bauer. They're able to not have to lose praising Clayton Kershaw and still have other pitchers. Like they, they, when, you're, when you're playing in the sandbox that they're playing in, they can just spend as much money as they want. Bring, they made a trade for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer in the middle of the year, and it's a disappointment. Look, when you're the Dodgers, when you're the Yankees, when you're these teams, it's, the World Series are at the season. I mean, it has to be. It's just, and now this is a team that's only won one World Series, but really been the favorite in the last six, seven years. So I think it's a bad, bad loss for them. Let's talk about the American League side because uh, Houston, I thought this was going to be a better series than it was. Houston just looked better than Boston almost every time they had the chance to, to flex their muscles, and they're moving on to the, uh, to the World Series once again. Well, I think the issue of this series was that we, I think we did the game Monday night. The Red Sox went up 2-1 on a 12-3 win. So it's now they're up 2-1 in the series, and the Red Sox are looking good. They start game four. The Astros start Granky. He goes one inning, gives up two runs, and the Sox are leading 2-1 going to the top of the eighth. So here's the Red Sox. They're set to go up 
three games to one. <laughs> you know, they have two, three games to one uh, and uh, with another game at home and at the top of the eighth. And then El Tulve hits a home run to make it 2-2. And then in the, top, in the top of the ninth, the Astros scores seven runs, seven runs to go 9-2. And after that point, they outscored the Red Sox 16, uh, I got to add this up here, 1925, 30-3. 30-3. I mean, this is professional baseball. And because game four, I mean, they, they, in game five, they won uh, uh, 9-1. And then in, in game six, they won 5 nothing. So from that moment in the eighth inning to score seven runs then, and then they go with nine on Wednesday and then five on Friday. Uh, and then they actually got pitching. They, they, Valdez pitched a great game. Uh, on, uh, uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, they finally, I mean, it's amazing. The Astros, I expected each game to be like first one to 10, you know, 12, 10 games, which was happening sort of, but when Valdez pitched five, no hit innings, he gave eight innings, three hits, one run. And then on Friday, uh, Garcia had five innings and gave up one hit. And then you're getting hitters like Alvarez, who on was three for five with a home run and three RBIs on Wednesday and Goriel. These are both Cuban players that came over to the Astros and the Astros, were great. I mean, the hitting came, they just hit, and the Red Sox stopped hitting. Kiki Hernandez stopped hitting. Uh, they really just didn't get anything with Bogarts, and it was just all fell apart for the Red Sox. I mean, the Red Sox were surprising all year, surprising at where they were at. But I think it's also surprising the Astros, because they really had no pitching that somehow got here and then just said, we're going to hit everybody. And then you have Altuve and Correa and Brantley and, uh, and Bregman, and then you have Alvarez and Guriel. You're just, just so many hitters. And, uh, and if they get the pitching that they had, that's why I think they'll beat the Braves. They have the, they're getting some good pitching, which they really don't need so much of, and then great hitting. And uh, I think they should beat the Braves because I don't, I still, I'm not sold on the Braves pitchers. If the Dodgers didn't take advantage of it, I think the Astros will. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm torn on this one. I keep thinking whoever I think is going to lose ends up winning all these series, so I'm just not going to count the Braves out. I think it's going to be a great series. It's going to kick off with Charlie Morton and uh, Framber Valdez, and I believe this is the third straight World Series for Charlie Morton with different teams, which is pretty crazy. It's just Charlie Morton, and, and, and how many, we're going to go back last week, how many Game 5s and Game 7s he's pitched. I mean, he is the biggest big game pitcher, and we talked about this when it happened. What did I say? The ask the Rays, I think he wanted like fifteen million a year. The Rays only want to pay him ten, so he goes for fifteen to the Braves. How many other teams could have Charlie Morton that need pitching? Like yeah. nobody. I mean, what a, and what a great move for the Braves because without Charlie Morton, they're never. They, they will don't win seventy five games. Charlie Morton was the only reason they even had some pitching this year. Um, but um, they uh, it just it's funny with Morton because he, as I said, he was on the Pirates. He was with Garrett Cole on that team with the Pirates and Cole and Morton yeah. on, on that team. I run sports, True Oldies Channel. It's 718. I'm Mike Balsamo. Seth Wickersham joins us in about 20 minutes. Going to have a lot of fun to talk with him. Ira, let's go to NCAA football here. And you're looking at it, and, and you're probably right in this, that there's basically eight teams fighting for those four playoff spots. Two teams. I had 10 going into this weekend, and two eliminated themselves. But Georgia didn't play. But Cincinnati is just the interesting, because Cincinnati is ranked number two. And I think when the uh, the playoff committee comes out. I don't think Cincinnati will be too, but Cincinnati has positioned themselves very well that they really are going to win every. They're 90% favored to win the rest of their season, their games. And they're the American Conference. They don't play anyone that's very good, SMU, teams like that. But because they beat Notre Dame, that's great. And also, Notre Dame keeps winning games. So Notre Dame looks good because Notre Dame's going to have one loss to Cincinnati. And I think as all these other teams lose and have two losses, I think it's a one loss team could potentially beat Cincinnati, but so many teams now have two losses. Cincinnati is, is sitting very well. Oklahoma is still in it, but they're going to lose, I think, eventually. Then you have Bama, and then you have the Big Ten teams, Ohio State, Michigan, and Michigan State. And then Oregon is almost tied to Ohio State because Ohio State, we're going to go through these games real fast, but Ohio State is looking amazing, like the best team in the country right now. They're dominating, and Oregon beat them at Ohio State a month ago. <laughs> so that's the best way. Even though Oregon, every other game looks terrible, and they, but they only have one loss, and, uh, but this is their – so I think that's why I throw Oregon still in the mix in terms of how this has happened. All right, let's get into the games. We'll start off with Cincinnati versus uh, Navy. Iris Cincinnati won, but, man, this was a little too close for comfort, especially if you're a gambler. <laughs> they were favored by 30. 30 points, they were down 7-0, and they were down 13-10. And they were, even in the second half, when they got that 27-10 lead, and Navy was 1-6 going into the game. And Navy went down, they scored a field goal, then scored a touchdown, and then got the onside kick and had the ball ready to drive the tie, and they threw an interception. So n- normally, normally, you would look at, normally you would look at this game, and you'd say, 
wow, this is going to hurt Cincinnati. They're going to drop in the polls. But because everyone else sort of had trouble, it's like all Cincinnati really has to do. I don't think style points matter. Their style points are beating Notre Dame. But I think this is, I really think Cincinnati is going to win out and they're at least going to get the fourth spot in the college football playoffs. But they just have to win. But this is the first close game they played like this all year. So you're, I guess it's a wake up call. And their quarterback, Desmond Ritter, didn't play well. I mean, it's like every time someone says, I think Desmond Ritter is going to be the first pick in the NFL draft, then, or whoever's going to be the first pick, then they have a terrible week. But he, I heard Kirk hearing comments that Ritter might be the first pick, and he was terrible. He had bad interceptions, just didn't move the team well. But uh, at least a win to win, even though they're favored by 29 and they only win by seven. Let's talk about Oklahoma versus Kansas. There's another one that should have been a blowout and really wasn't. Kansas lost by 27 uh, earlier. They lost to Baylor by 38. They lost to Duke by 20. Iowa State by 52. Texas Tech by 27. They were uh, they were under by 40. And I had I was looking at betting things, and people said take Oklahoma. They're going to win by 60. And I thought that was insane. Of course, I would have taken the points because the baddest team is I think Oklahoma's inconsistent. Kansas was up ten nothing at the end of the first half, <laughs> and finally Oklahoma scored. And Kansas was still up seventeen seven at the end of the third. And it took Caleb Williams, the quarterback for Oklahoma, again on a fourth and like two. He ran in for a touchdown, and they made it twenty eight twenty twenty eight seventeen. But Kansas actually. Oklahoma scored. I mean, Oklahoma's defense is terrible. Like, their offense isn't very good, and their defense is terrible, too. They gave a touchdown to Kansas to make it 28-23, but then Oklahoma scored. And, and Caleb Williams is a, is a freshman, and he played, he played, I would think, poor, I would say that. But, uh, I mean, this is a team, Oklahoma, that almost lost to Tulane, 40-35, Nebraska, 23-16, West Virginia, 16-13, Kansas State by six, and uh, Texas by seven. I, I, it's amazing. I've never seen a team like this that just continually just wins these close games. Uh, but I expect they now play Texas Tech, Baylor, Oklahoma State, and uh, I think it, I think there's a good chance that they're not going to make it through an Iowa State uh, the rest of these games without one, if not two losses. But um, they actually dropped from third to fourth because of uh, the next game with Alabama. So, Ira, you know, Tennessee fans hit um, Lane Kiffin with the golf ball after that, that uh, game last week. If, if they had beaten Alabama, what would they do? Put a pipe bomb on Nick Saban's car? Like, these, these guys are out of control. <laughs> then this game was actually looked pretty good from Tennessee's side for a half. I got to give Lane Kiffin credit. You know, you watch that all the time, and someone throws a golf ball, and it's certainly, if people throw stuff on the field, it's ridiculous. It should do it. But, I mean, the fact that he just picked the golf ball up and made fun of it and then said, I need it, like, they're going to need it in case I, cause I, that's how I play golf. I, I thought that was good. But this is both Tennessee, Alabama. I went to the games years ago uh, when Peyton Manning played, and this used to be a rivalry. But it, when does a rivalry not be a rivalry when one team wins 15 in a row games? And, uh, Tennessee's played better this year. They're four the, after this loss. They're the four and four. Alabama won 52 24. Uh, Bryce Young, I think, is playing great. Like, I like, I watched this game while the, while the playoffs were on it. He was 31 for 43, 370 yards, two touchdowns. Just played fantastic. Uh, and, and Williams and Mechie, the two wide receivers, look great. Um, there was a point where Alabama converted like 15 to 23rd downs. Tennessee only com- converted two or 13, but, uh, it was a loss. I mean, Alabama had the loss to Texas A&M, and you're questioning how they could respond to a loss. If any coach can motivate a team after a loss, it's Nick Saban, and to come out strong like that was important. So in two weeks, then they play at home against uh, LSU. Ohio State faced off against Indiana, and this one was uh, not, not very close. Not just not close. It was 44 to seven in the first half. Uh, it was, I think, the most yards, uh, third most yards Ohio State has ever had in the first in the half. The, the stats on Ohio State over the last five games have been is amazing. After that loss, they still lost to Oregon. So in the last 17 drives in the first half, they scored 16 touchdowns with one in, uh, with uh, 16 touchdowns with one field goal. In the last 20 drives for C.J. Stroud, their quarterback, the freshman, uh, he's had 19 touchdowns on 20 drives. I mean, I just can't look at these stats here. I mean, they're just amazing. And uh, they have since their loss to Oregon, Ohio State has won five games by an average of 42 points. So you talk about a team, a loss motivating a team or waking a team up. I mean, Ryan Day just clearly woke up Ohio State. And, of course, this week I'm going to come and see Penn State, Ohio State, the horseshoe, where Ohio State's favored by 19 points uh, in that game. But it was – it's uh, again, after Ohio State, you're like, what happened? Like, they fixed their defense, and their offense sort of said, we're just going to keep scoring. Like, if we don't have a defense, we'll just score every time we touch the ball. And it's like one of those things where I don't remember a team that said – and they could have – they could have – put 100 on if they wanted to. I mean, they, they get these huge leads where they're scoring 30 and 40 points in the first half, and they're just stopping and, and not running the score up. But you could see scores of 80 and 90 because – and this is Indiana team that almost beat them last year. So just 
they really, that loss, and I give Ryan Day credit because this season could have just gone off the rails, and it not only didn't go off the rails, but he, he taught his team, they learned from it, and now made corrected a lot of mistakes. I, I didn't have that much confidence in Michigan going into this season. I thought there was a lot of turmoil with Harbaugh and all that, but they're winning. They're undefeated at 7-0, and and they beat a team that they're supposed to beat in Northwestern. Well, they won 33-7, and uh, two running backs that ran over 100 yards. But it all comes down to this week. They're at Michigan State. Uh, they're favored by a couple points. And they're both teams. No one's giving Michigan State a lot of credit. They've been underdogs like the last three or four games, and they're still 7-0. They're both 7-0 and um, for the first time in years for either team. And this is a big game. This is sort of like the semifinals. The Big Ten has a great weekend. Penn State at Ohio State and Michigan at Michigan State. And this is really going to sort things out in terms of where we go from here. And, and, and one of these teams is going to be said as a pretender, and the other is going to be 8-0. and So that's why this next week is going to be so big. Ira, you talked about it earlier, nine overtime game between Penn State and Illinois, and uh, Penn State did not come out on the on the winning side here. But more importantly, you hate the college overtime rules. Well, I think more importantly, Penn State did. I hate everything about this. This game, I was in shock. First of all, it's like you watch a game when a team's like Penn State by 25, and Illinois offensively could absolutely do nothing. They were pathetic. Penn State was up 7-0, then 10-7 at halftime. And you just, all Illinois was doing was running the ball, but it just, then you look at the stats and they ended up, Penn State, uh, they had one, Chase Brown rushed for 223 yards. Josh McCray ran for 142 yards against Penn State. The, the number was, Illinois had 360 yards on Penn State. Penn State had 62. Understand this. Illinois is the worst team in the Big Ten in running and passing. Like, they're a bad team. They're the worst defense. They've lost to University of Texas at San Antonio. Not University of Texas, University of Texas at San Antonio. UVA, Maryland, and Purdue. They lost 24 nothing to Wisconsin. They have the worst defense, offensive Big Ten and the worst defense in the Big Ten. Uh, Brad Billman's come on to be the coach, but his comment like two weeks ago was he said, I was left with nothing. There's no players here. I'm bringing players in from high school, all this other stuff. And how's a Penn State team that only a few weeks ago thought they were going to be number two in the country somehow lost this game? Just ridiculous. And just an embarrassment, and uh, it was it was one of those things that even when it was they scored a 10-10, Penn State had the ball with two drives to go to score anything, and they couldn't even score. So it was after Illinois had tied it. Sean Clifford played terrible. This whole Penn State quarterback situation is a mess. Sean Clifford played like the Sean Clifford of the last year, not this year, and didn't play well. He was supposed to be injured, which, of course, Penn State won't say what the injury is. It's top secret. No one knows because they don't report any injuries. Like, they're the only team in the country that doesn't do that. But that's Penn State because they think they're smarter than everyone else. But I don't know why. But the point is is that it was terrible. But then you go to overtime. So in 2018, LSU and Texas A&M went to seven overtimes. The game lasted like hours long, and it was five. It was so they they said after that, after five overtimes, a team would have to go a two point conversion, a two point conversion, a two point conversion, a two point conversion. So just run one play, like a soccer shootout or something like in a soccer, where you would just go run one play. And I didn't really see that much because I don't think there was a five overtime game last year at all. And then this year it changed to after two overtimes. So after the first overtime, you had to go for two. And then after two overtimes, then it was just going to be one play. So I love when people say it's nine overtimes. Yeah, because it's totally different. It's like if you started <laughs> giving touchdowns, 14 points, and someone's scoring 100 points, like, oh, it's the most points ever scored in a game. Like, if you're changing how you're defining what an overtime is, on it's one play. They literally just ran a play. And I heard reporters talk about this, like, I can't believe they played nine overtimes. That's crazy. It's just running a two-point conversion. And then when you have two teams, like, so Penn State, it was, it was tied after two, then they run it, and then after they, each team, after the first four times, they don't do anything, and they're not, their inability, both teams, Illinois, I give, I'll give a pass to. There's no way with all the weapons that Penn State has in offense. They have two wide receivers that are going to be first-round draft picks. They didn't throw to either one of them for the first four overtimes. Dotson can catch. I don't understand what these plays were. They did a Philly special where they had Clifford. So Sean Clifford, who's too injured, and I don't know why he can't even move or whatever, they have him running a Philly special play. Like, that's your play, Penn State? That's what you're going to try to do to run? And then in the eighth overtime, Isaiah Williams scored for Illinois, make it 18-16, and then Penn State scored. And in the ninth overtime, Clifford threw it for Penn State. It was broken up. Illinois scored, game over, season over, disaster for Penn State. Don't even think about being in any – but what – just in the record that Franklin has after – James Franklin has after losses is terrible. He's like three and five after losing his first loss. Um, I, as for a coach that everyone thinks they go to USC, LSU – just and his post game presser, I had to watch and read it twice. He said that 
the game, it was it was pouring down rain. It was difficult for him to it was Penn State to pass first team. It was hard to become a run first team with only one week of preparation. Even they had two weeks of preparation because they had a bye week. I mean, none of this makes sense. Iowa they had a week off. Like it just doesn't make any sense. We mean two weeks. Like how do you adjust in a game? Let alone you need a week to go from a pass team to a run team. Just ridiculous and embarrassment. And all my friends that make fun of Penn State, now they're happy. They're calling me up like, I told you Penn State's not real. They're totally right. What a disaster. We've got about just about six or seven minutes till we have to get to uh, Seth Wickersham. What else happened in uh, college football? Well, the big game was Oklahoma State-Iowa State. And Iowa State won that game. They were favorite. But that was key because Oklahoma State was undefeated. For Iowa State to win that game and win that with uh, was, was Bryce Purdy, uh, great quarterback for Iowa State. Big game for them. Uh, it's just exciting, too. The fans rush. It was one of those Iowa State beats Oklahoma State. Fans rush the field. Iowa State has two losses, but that sort of eliminated Oklahoma State from the, the national chip from the playoff consideration. And Oregon beating UCLA. Weird game. Um, Oregon's won six wins by four points or by seven points or less. Um, they fell down behind, hung in the game. Caden Theobald, if you want to see the first-round draft pick in the NFL, that's the one. He had two sacks, five tackles for a loss. Looked like Lawrence Taylor out there for Oregon on defense. Um, but Oregon's still staying undefeated, which gives them that maybe in for uh, the playoffs. Mississippi beat LSU 31-17, a big win for Lane Kiffin uh, and Matt Corral, their quarterback. But it's just like LSU, they beat Florida one week, and then the next week they, they lose to Ole Miss. And uh, Notre Dame keeps winning over USC. And then in, uh, Miami had the first win. 31-30 over NC State. Not first win, but their first, I think, first AC win. Yeah, they were 31-30. And uh, a big game happened. Pitt beat Clemson. Now, Pitt is one loss. If they wouldn't have lost to Western Michigan, they would be undefeated. And they have a quarterback, Kenny Pickett. So the last few years, Kenny Pickett's been nice. He's a 6-2, 230, had okay numbers. 12 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, 13 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, whatever. 13 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, 60% passer. This year, he has thrown 23 touchdowns, two, one, one interception, um, passing almost 70%, and he's going to get some Heisman Trophy votes. And most importantly, Kenny Pickett's going to be a first-round draft pick. If he keeps playing like this for a few more games, five more games, he's going to be a first-round draft pick, and he might be the first quarterback taken in the NFL draft out of nowhere what he's made in terms of what he's done. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's the situation. And then going this next weekend, the big games, Penn State, Ohio State, uh, Georgia, Florida, huge. Georgia's favored by 14. Michigan and Michigan State, Michigan's favored by four and a half. And Miami's at a pit, so people can watch that Miami pit game. Pitt's favored by 10. Uh, and then uh, UNC at Notre Dame. But that's sort of – next week's sort of a it's just a big, big game. The Georgia game, the Michigan game, and the, Penn, and the Ohio State game are the pretty big games. 7.33, I run Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsama. Five minutes, we talk to uh, sports author and writer Seth Wickersham. Let's go to the NFL quick. And Ira – Tua Tagovailoa actually had a pretty good game for the Dolphins, but they find ways to lose. And Brian Flores, as much as I like him, I think the patience is starting to run thin with him. Well, he's one and six, and it's turned. And it's starting to turn. And the whole Tua situation, as long as it drags on, if they're going to trade for Deshaun Watson, just trade for him. I liked how Tua. I agree with you. I thought he played this game well, except these interceptions are terrible. But remember, it's his second year. Patrick Mahomes is throwing interceptions and is getting paid four hundred million dollars a year. Aaron Rodgers threw interceptions in his first game. Like I like Tua, and I think Tua. Look, if Tua is going, they're going to trade it. Tua is going to go somewhere. I think Tua is a quarterback in this league. Like I don't think he's going to be the greatest quarterback to ever play, but. Two is fine, and I think that this is just is a thing. He just give him a chance to get better. And Gasicki had seven catches, and Waddle had seven catches. Uh, but again, they 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 scored. They went and they gave Atlanta time to come down. I mean, the, the Dolphins' defense played terrible this game. So I mean, the Dolphins last year had this great defense, and this year they're struggling. But uh, I, I like how Tua kept the team in the game. And uh, I mean, for Florida fans of Florida, Kyle Pitts. Finally, a big game, 163 yards receiving, and he had a catch where someone was trying to tackle him while he was trying to catch the ball, and he caught it with like one hand. I can't believe he caught that with one hand, but he's so good, and that was his first big breakout game. So, Ira, it was a really weird week with some very unpredictable outcomes, but probably the one that nobody saw coming was the Ravens coming off an absolute shellacking of the Chargers to get crushed by the Bengals. No one saw this coming. That was amazing. I mean, it was 13-10 at, at the half, and then when you, Lamar Jackson's pulled and you have his backup quarterback in the second, who would ever thought that this game? But really, it's uh, Jamar Chase. I mean, they drafted him. This was a smart move. The Bengals drafted uh, Joe Burrow's uh, college best uh, quarterback, when uh, a wide receiver from two years ago when he won a national championship. And people are like, oh, why is he? You know, he should draft an offensive lineman. There was a whole debate with that. 
Um, he, now, Jamar Chase has 754 yards, which is the most for the player in his first seven games in the history of the NFL. That's, so that, I would say that that pick really worked out well, considering everybody's fantasy team. I'm watching it. But Chase had eight catches for 201 yards, and he's the type of player that can get open. What's so dangerous about Chase is he gets open, he catches the ball, and then when he catches it, he makes players miss, and he's faster, and no one can catch him. So that's what makes a great quarterback. So just if you get a chance to watch the Bengals play, watch Jamar Chase, watch Joe Burrow, and they have a great connection, and I think it's going to go like this the rest of the season. Yeah, I was talking to friends of mine watching you know, the games, and I was just like, you can't not like this Bengals team. They're just fun, and you have to like Chase. You have to like Burrow. I'm rooting for him. Um, so, Ira, <laughs> if, is it the NFL doesn't get any weirder? What would you do if I told you two weeks ago that a team would beat the Chiefs, beat the Bills, and lose to the Jets in consecutive weeks? It makes no sense, but that's what Tennessee did, and they're pretty much the number one seed on paper right now in the AFC. Well, there's a lot going on here. Tennessee, I, I give this like with, I call it like the Ohio State lost to Oregon. It's, that that's you know motivated them. I mean, to beat Buffalo and Kansas City within six days, going to beat Buffalo Monday night, and then they score the first five times they get the ball. They're up twenty-seven to nothing. This is the Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. Yes, Patrick Mahomes played. Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, offense coordinator, Travis Kelsey, Tyree Kill. I mean, this is that Chiefs team. Uh, 18 to four in the first down of the first half. The Tennessee had almost 300 yards. The Chiefs only had 68. Remember, Tennessee's defense is terrible too. Like I, this made no sense at all. And Derrick Henry didn't even rush for 100 yards for Tennessee. But the Chiefs have totally fallen off the rails. Mahomes is a mess. They're off, they have no offensive line. I mean, he has thrown nine interceptions this year. Uh, in the last two years, he threw five and six. So he's thrown almost as many in one year as he did. And we're only halfway, not even halfway through the year that he did the last two years. And I think this is the lesson to learn from this. We're going to have talk about Brady. But the lesson learned is they're paying him $35, $40 million a year. When you're paying your quarterback that much, you don't have that much for everything else. You can't afford to make mistakes. They have no defense right now, no offensive line, and the Chiefs have a big problem. Like, this is, a, this is major. And Mahomes is going to get hurt. He got hit so many times in the games. Like, when he's struggling to throw the ball, he's not going to make it. We talked about this before. I don't think Patrick Mahomes, 33, 34 years old, I don't think he's playing quarterback in the league. I think he's out. I just think it's, he cannot keep taking the hits that he's taking and, uh, and still stay in this league because these hits are too hard. Um, yeah, Mahomes leads the league in interceptions tied with Zach Wilson. Not what anyone would have anticipated going into the season. <laughs> Lions and Rams, um, gotta like the Lions too. They play really hard. They're just outmanned when it comes to playing the Rams. I liked, I watched the game too. I liked the Lions and I wasn't going to go to the game and they hung in there. They almost, it was, it was a Jared Goff and that's that. I mean, how many times do quarterbacks get traded on a team? It's rare that Goff went to Detroit, Stafford comes to the Rams and you talk about one of the best trades if they if the Rams end up winning the Super Bowl, it's one of the best trades ever. People want to talk about what would some of they do with a great quarterback like Stafford uh, played well. That was a big Cooper Cups play great. But again, you know, the Lions, like I hope Matt Campbell, I hope if they go. Oh, they're never going to go in six seventeen. But I, they play hard. It seems like every single game they're in it. And uh, uh, but the but the Rams at six and one. I mean, they, you're starting to see these elite teams like in the NFC. The Rams are the Rams, the Cowboys, the, the, the Cardinals, and the and the Packers are those elite teams. Um, let's talk uh, just real quick. Tom Brady is just unbelievable. And I'm starting to hear people see, by the way, that game is 38-3. to Tampa crushed them. Six minutes into the game, you knew that this game was over. I hear people saying it's time to throw in the towel on, on the Justin Fields experiment, which is just crazy. That you know This guy's, what, three, four starts into his career. They have no offensive line. But either way, they're getting crushed. Well, he threw three, three interceptions and four sacks. And uh, I want to ask Seth about this, too. But... The one thing is, you're having Tom Brady. Tom Brady is 40-some years old. He's played in a zillion games, big games. He's playing Justin Fields in this game. Think of the intelligence that Tom Brady has when he goes to the line. Like, he knows everything that's happening. Justin Fields could have a, have a, a Mensa IQ, but still not see all the different things. I mean, you're, the, the thing is that Brady's playing longer than anyone's ever played. And these quarterbacks like Fields normally would be, you know, he'd be next year playing. Like, they're, they're playing too early. I think from this game, what's important, Tampa's defense. I think Tampa's defense is now starting to improve. You're starting to see this around the same time last year that Tampa started to play better. Um, so I think that was, it's a good win for Tampa and uh, to hold the Bears to three. And they didn't have to have Antonio Brown. They didn't have Rob Gronkowski. Uh, Brady, just whoever's out there is, is well and, he, and he's able to get, uh, uh, when you have so many weapons that they have, they can have these injuries to these players and then they still win like that. Before we get to Seth Wickersham, uh, anything else you want to add in the NFL? It does stand to be mentioned uh, Devontae Adams tested positive for COVID and he's probably going to sit out Thursday. 
that that's that that's a big thing. I mean, this that for that game in terms of that Thursday night game this week, Green Bay at Arizona. What a huge game! I mean, that's that's going to be enormous. But I did want to touch about the game last night. Absolutely embarrassed. I mean, um, Jimmy Garoppolo was horrendous. The intercept, two interceptions, the fumbles. I, I don't know if I saw a quarterback play. I know it was raining outside. And I've got to give Carson Wentz credit. Carson Wentz made a terrible interception himself, but at least he threw down to Michael Pittman, and they got these pass interference penalties. And San Francisco, everyone thinks San Francisco is this elite team, Cal Shanahan. They're, they're terrible. Like, they were awful in this game. And it's not it, – it's just a mess in terms of and, – and Indianapolis is hanging in there. But I did like what, what they, they definitely – Wentz, when he is, stays healthy, if they could just keep him healthy, he moves out of the pocket well. His arm strength is, is great, even through the rain. And Pittman, he finally finds this wide receiver that just continually gets down there. And he had two, not only did he have 100 yards catching, but he had two, like, 70-yard pass interference penalties. But just a terrible loss for the 49ers. And going in this week, Pittsburgh-Cleveland, uh, the, uh, New England, the Chargers, and tonight's game, New Orleans-Seattle. I'm going to make – I don't know what you're, where you're going to go on this, but I think New Orleans, they're uh, – uh, New Orleans lost to the Giants 27-21 and lost to Carolina 26-7. I, don't, I know that Seattle has Geno Smith as a quarterback, and I, but I still think they'll win that game. They're, they're giving five, but I just, I'm not sold on New Orleans yet. Um, I, I'll take New Orleans in this one. I, I don't trust the Seattle defense at all or Geno Smith, so I'll go that direction. But right now, let's go to Seth Wickersham on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9, West Palm Beach. Um, here, I'm honored to have Seth Wickersham, the author of the number one book that people are talking about in terms of sports right now. It's better be feared about the entire Patriot dynasty. Seth, first of all, thank you so much for writing this book. It was awesome. Not only is it such interesting topics, but it was so well written, and it's just great. So thank you again for writing this, uh, this amazing book. Oh, man, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it was... I guess it was like I'm reading the finishing the book last night, and I was mm-hmm. uh, watching Jimmy Garoppolo for San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. Uh, and you're thinking you spend about, I would say, 150 pages discussing the whole Garoppolo and Brady and Belichick, and you're like, wait, this whole thing was going to be derailed because of this, because of Garoppolo out there. But uh, that was, I think it was, it was great that I was reading the book while I was watching that at the same time. It is crazy, right? Because you know, obviously Jimmy G is, is been deemed not to be the long-term answer that out there in California. And yet, you know, his, through no fault of his own, really, I mean, his career has kind of intersected and been this kind of interesting inflection point in the entire Patriots run. I mean, you know, Belichick had presented data to craft, you know, eight years ago or so talking about, you know, quarterbacks, once they're in their late thirties, the decline and explaining the reason to draft a quarterback. And, and, you know, he sent Mike Lombardi, one of his closest aides to go research all the available quarterbacks in that draft. And they, and they picked Garoppolo. And, you know, even though Brady liked Garoppolo as a person, you know, he probably liked the idea of Garoppolo less. I mean, it was just so obvious that Belichick was, was really invested in him at one point, he used the word seamless to describe the difference in the offensive play behind with Brady and with Garoppolo, and obviously held him in, held on to him until the last second until he had to trade him, and he traded him to, you know, a hand-picked team that he thought he'd be successful in. And then fast forward a couple of years, Brady's a free agent, and he targets San Francisco and Garoppolo in a pretty ruthless move, hoping that the 49ers would move on from Jimmy after the Super Bowl loss and sign him. And then, on top of it all, you have the Patriots, after the 49ers traded up to draft Trey Lance, kind of hoping that the 49ers would end up releasing Garoppolo, and they actually were in trade talks with him. So it's a very odd, odd career that this guy has had. Yeah, I mean, and the idea about Tom Brady, we view him as the greatest ever, the greatest player to ever play. But your book really, you, 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 talk, you cover Kraft, you cover, cover Belichick, and you cover Brady. And so that, what I love about this book is that you brought it all together. So it wasn't just a book on Belichick, it was a book on Brady, it was a book on all of them. And what I loved about it was that he didn't play football until he was 14 years old. He was the backup quarterback for an entire year on a JV team. You know, kids today are playing football in their five, six, seven, and five football leagues. And he, he was a backup quarterback on a winless JV team. Nobody wants to recruit him to go to college. He goes to Michigan as in seventh string on the team, seventh on the death chart. And when he finally got the job at Michigan, they, they're trying to, um, Lloyd Carr is trying to push him with Drew Hansen. It's like, 
and no one has respected me. He's been he's been sort of disrespected, and now he's but he's viewed as the greatest of all time. But his entire life, he's been disrespected almost. Well, there's that, and there's also like he he kind of has a you know we all have narratives that we tell ourselves about how we got to wherever, and Brady leans into that to the point where he almost forgets sometimes that he has been respected. Like in high school, he was once at high school. He was at practice. And he was getting really frustrated. It was a windy day, and his receivers are just dropping passes. And he can't handle it. And he's starting to, you know, rage. And his rage is one of the prevalent things that I, you know, get out of them in the book. And he's so mad that his receivers can't catch the ball. And finally, his head coach pulls him aside and was like, look, Tom, you need to be more patient. And, you know, Tom didn't want to hear that at all. And then finally, the coach says, look, you're going to be playing in 10 years. You're one of a kind. None of these other guys are. And it was one of the first times in Brady's life that a, a person of authority had kind of spoken to him in that way. And so, like, yes, you know, Lloyd Carr wanted to, um, you know, see what he had in Drew Henson. You know, Brady wasn't fully formed. Brady needed to be broken and rebuilt. And that's what Michigan did to him. I mean, he arrived in Michigan. He told, he, you know, he said he's a, he was a whiner when he got there. And when he thought about transferring, his counselor was like laughing at him, like, go ahead. You want to leave? Go ahead. You haven't done bleep here anyway, and no one's going to care if you leave. He really needed to get tougher. And as he said to me and others, I mean, you know, college, he got a lot out of college. And then the, the real, obviously, you know, the breaking point was, was the draft where there was just, you know, a series of malpractices around the league. But even so, you know, Mike Riley, Mike Riley, the head coach of the San Diego Chargers, who recruited Brady out of high school, thought he was going to get him and couldn't at USC because of the head coach, thought that he had Brady. And he told the GM of the Chargers, Bobby Beathard, I want Brady. Beathard said, okay. And then 20 minutes later, he comes back and he says, you know, I watched Brady's film. I'm not sold. We're going to take a linebacker. And so it's true that Brady has been obviously there's been an element of him that's been completely overlooked and disrespected and he also leans into that as much as he can you know due to the story he tells himself even if you know there are some points in his life where people did see his genius but then then you also mentioned about belichick and it's it's unique because he also himself has this whole I'm disrespect. I mean, the whole problem with the Browns and, mm-hmm. and those things. So he, even though his father was a noted coach and famous coach, but he didn't really, his connect, his father didn't really help him get every connection. It was sort of, as you say in the book, it was, he was working, just copying things in places and stuff like that really worked his way up because he wasn't a pro football player, was an NFL player and didn't have that entree that a, a pro football player. And that's why he's sort of, he's all, he always came from the perspective. I'm just going to have to be smarter and I work everybody. I'm just not, that's how I'm going to advance in this yeah absolutely and and ira they came to each other's lives at a very fragile time brady and belichick you know both of them understood they both had this incredible drive to be great at at a game that nobody could control and and they were that drive you know was was hidden because both of them are kind of quiet people but it it dominated their entire lives and kind of shaped their shaped their self-identity and so in 2000, when Belichick drafts Brady, he doesn't know it at the time that, you know, he's won the lottery. But both of them, you know, Belichick had seen his own career and life annihilated in Cleveland and, and had to wait five years for a second chance. Brady almost went undrafted. Like, both of these men understood the inherent fragility in the career that they had chosen. And I think that's one of the reasons why the first, you know, three or four Super Bowls, even though they weren't, you know, similar personalities. I think it's one of the reasons why they made beautiful music together is because they both kind of realized that they came into each other's lives at that perfect time. And the sky was the limit of what they could accomplish. And then you bring in Robert Kraft, the owner who almost has that same type of thing where, you know, he made his money when he married into a family that turned a packaging business and, and got rich that way, but somehow bought the probably the, the team that had the least value in the league because they were played at a terrible stadium because he, he owned yeah. the lease to the stadium and was able to take it over. And no one's like, we look at the Patriots today, even though the stadium is the most impossible stadium to get in and out of is at the Brady return game. I, I cannot believe people can go back and forth that game. But the fact is he turned into this valuable franchise and worth billions of dollars, but he, he, was, he just, you know, he himself 
But the genius of him was when Belichick, was so hard to get Belichick, and he was already fired, and Parcells won't let him go. He traded the number one draft pick for him. And your story about why he made that trade, I mean, that was a brilliant, brilliant move, and it, it paid off, and, and Kraft's got to get credit for that. Oh, no doubt. I think that it was the greatest trade in NFL history. And, you know, I, I think that what made Kraft interesting is that even though um, you know, he had his own issues, right? I mean, he can be kind of needy and he didn't feel like that Belichick treated him with the respect that he deserved. He always kind of understood the bigger picture. And that was that he had something great going and he had watched what happened when Jerry Jones let ego get in the way of the Dallas Cowboys and what happened to, you know, an incredible collection of, of coaching and, and on-field talent. And so he really took it upon himself to manage these personalities and to keep Brady and Belichick around as long as it possibly could go. And that was, it was hard, you know? And I mean, at times it made their Brady and Belichick relationship even harder because in a lot of ways, some of the coaches felt like that Kraft was so willing to appease Brady that it almost made Belichick look out, look like more of the bad guy than he actually was being at times. But, and then, you know, there was one moment where, where Kraft was at the, at a rich guy's business conference in Aspen. And he's, you know, he's like, man, I really hate leaving here. You leave all these brilliant minds. And, you know, I got to go back to Detroit to be with the biggest effing a-hole in my life, my head coach. And, you know, it's like, but, but in the same sense, Kraft was able to keep it together as long as he could. And one of the ways he did that was that he always told Brady that if Belichick ever decided to move on from him, he would let him have some say over his fate. And then he evolved that to saying, you know, he had earned the right to walk away on his own terms. And that stuff really came to a head in August of 2019 when, you know, the Patriots and Brady were in a really tough contract negotiation. Kraft ends up kind of backing Belichick and not wanting to offer Brady a contract until he's age 45. And Brady signs what's essentially a one-year contract with an out to be a free agent. And 48 hours after he signs that contract, he and Giselle Bunchen put their house on the market. Right. I mean, that was, uh, it, it was the one thing in terms of it, you've mentioned the book though. I mean, you, it's the, it is the growth. It's in the beginning when Brady, you mentioned mm-hmm. that he went to his players like Lord Leroy, Dion Branch, whenever Belichick gets, he's known to just like get rid of players. If it doesn't work, you know, better a year early than a year late. But mm-hmm. Brady went to Kraft, but Kraft back on some issues, you know, Brady didn't have that pull. He couldn't, you know, some of these players do have this, but it's also that you heard about Aaron Rodgers. When Aaron Rodgers was complaining, it's like, oh, we got rid of, he listed, what, 20 players the backers had, and they don't listen to me. But, you know, Brady had the same issue, and he was going, and no one would seem to listen to him on, on who he was trying to get. Well, I think that towards, towards the end of Brady's career, he not only wanted a contract that would take him until age 45, but I think he wanted to just have more influence, you know, across the organization. And even though I think that Belichick adjusted more than he got credit for, Belichick was never going to hand over the keys to the team to Brady. And, you know, Brady told Joe Montana at the Super Bowl when the Chiefs played um, the 49ers, he goes, you know, they, they ask my opinion, I give it, and then they do their own thing. And so I think that, you know, when he was looking for a new home, you know, obviously he wanted that contract and that belief that he could play till age 45. But like, he also wanted to just take what he had learned over this astounding career and influence it and try to help a team. And look at, at Tampa. I mean, you know, he's, he's the quarterback of the team. He's the de facto offensive coordinator. He's a pseudo personnel executive and Alex Guerrero, who obviously, you know, his business partner, who, who had his curtail access, you know, his, his access curtailed under Belichick has an office in the Tampa Bay Bucks building and he got a Super Bowl ring. And so, you know, things are just different for Brady and Tampa than they were ever going to be in New England. But is there any way, I mean, I think when you watch Brady, it's, it's like he is in the way the sport has, has transformed in terms of you can't sack him, you can't hurt him, and the wide receivers that he throws to are running wide open. And it's sort of come to him and, and let him play his game. But so many of these great athletes, and you saw Manning at the end, Peyton Manning lost all his physical skills, but just he won a Super Bowl, and people say, oh, he doesn't get credit for that. Yeah, he gets credit for it. He was just the smartest person on the field. I mean, he was a genius out there. So now you have Brady with still his great physical skills, maybe a little deteriorated, but the same thing, he's going against, like the other day, Justin Fields. I mean, he's playing against rookies, and, and these subpar, these quarterbacks that have no idea what they're looking at. Maybe 10 years no. they will. 
and, and that's the advantage. And I just was wondering by Belichick said, what, we could maybe get maybe two or three Super Bowls out of this if I could use that. But he didn't, he didn't push it. He didn't want to give him the five-year deal and, and didn't want to really keep Brady there. I mean, again, I just, I was thought that Brady, Belichick, you know, he felt that his ch- chances were better with something else than with Brady. I mean, it's turned out to be a massive personnel blunder that the two people who should have known better than anybody than to underestimate Tom Brady, Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft, did exactly that. And, um, I mean, you're right about Brady. It's not only that, you know, he walks onto each field with more knowledge than any quarterbacks probably ever had at this point. It's that, you know, he, he keeps improving physically and it's just odd, but he does like when they played, when the bucks played the Patriots and that, you know, obviously that, that highly anticipated game about a month ago, you know, the, the Bucks probably won that game on Brady's ability to extend plays outside of the pocket. As crazy as that sounds, I mean, Brady threw a, Belichick put it together a pretty good defense that forced Brady into a lot of incompletions and made them settle for a lot of field goals. And, you know, Brady's ability to roll out of the pocket and to scramble for a first down, you know, those are kind of the third down conversions that ended up, you know, winning the game for the Bucks. He, he's he is, like his coach said, I mean, he truly is one of a kind. But you mentioned your book, things that came out. I mean, that's what I would encourage anybody that your book has been on every time I go on my search engine sites is everything. They get blurbs about it. Read the book because I picked up so much stuff that I didn't see picked up in the media. And like one of the things I saw that I haven't heard anywhere was that Brady and Belichick, you right that they met twice a week, just themselves, mm-hmm. no offensive coordinators, no Josh McDaniels, no Charlie Weiss. Just those, not mm-hmm. once a week, not for a second, but you said they met twice a week themselves. Now, even when they were not supposedly talking to each other, they would still game plan each other. It's just amazing that these two brilliant minds would sit there. And you mentioned about Belichick, as you met, you know, he viewed himself as the coach of the entire team and not just a defensive coordinator that he saw both sides. And that's why he had those meeting with Brady without any coordinators. Well, in 2001, Dick Rabine, the Patriots quarterback coach, died. And after that, Belichick kind of assumed the role of quarterback coach in addition to being head coach. And that was obviously the year that, that Brady ended up coming in and starting most of the season and winning the Super Bowl. And he kind of just never stopped doing that. And he, he boiled the game down to its essence. And that's it. Like, obviously these other players matter, but he was doing his best to make sure that as a head coach, he was on the same page with his quarterback. And it was the most important, important relationship in football. And he was going to make sure that that was the case. And so on Tuesdays, they would meet and they would go through every defensive back that they were going to play against and what, and have a detailed scouting session about them and try to figure out routes that would work against those guys. And then on Saturday, they would, you know, review the game plan together and just make sure that they were on the same page with things. And so that was kind of how it worked. And I think that it was a fascinating, um, it, it was a fascinating way to do business, especially when you consider Belichick, you know, as a defensive coach, and, you know, Brady, obviously, like, you know, a quarterback of the team, the fact that they were able to do that was really fascinating. And, I mean, there was even some funny moments there. There was one year where Mark Sanchez was playing for the Jets, and Brady comes in for the Saturday meeting, and Belichick's watching, um, you know, film of, of Mark Sanchez. And Sanchez rolls out during one play, and he's got a receiver open like 60, 70 yards downfield. And Belichick was talking to Brady. He's like, God, you're not going to get a guy more open than this. Just throw it. Just throw it. And Brady's going like, dude, do you know what would happen if I tried to throw it as I was running 60 or 70 yards downfield? It would go 15 yards and die. And it was just sort of like, you you know, it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, yeah, just throw it. Yeah, of course. Like maybe two players in NFL history could make that throw. I just love it. And I love when you wrote the book that you on some of the plays, because everything's defined your last game. Either you win the Super Bowl, you lose the Super Bowl, lose a playoff game. And those games are defined by key plays in those games. And you just didn't say, well, this play happened. You gave us in the book the insight from everybody who was involved in the play, from the receivers, the linemen, and everything about those plays, the plays that we remember. And I think that even the opposing teams, and I thought that was pretty cool, because people, when you read the book, there were, I mean, Brady was 6-3 and three in the Super Bowl for the, the Buccaneers, and he lost 
you know, some very close playoff games and there was plays, but they didn't win. Like rarely, you mentioned this, like they rarely won any Super Bowl. Like, they win by 30 points. I mean, everything was down mm-hmm. to a kick of it, this and that. And I think that was so cool that Brady, so even though there was terrible losses, the Giants, there was the, the wins that he had. Um, and I think it was beneath the breakdown, how you said, you know, in the book and then how you mentioned that Belichick was concerned at the end for some of the losses they was having in these key games that he didn't like throw deep, made some mistakes. And that's where they thought the deterioration was starting. Well, look, there's so much that's gone on with the Patriots over the last 20 years that you could write a book about a gazillion things. You could write an entire book about Spygate, an entire book about Deflategate. And actually, there has been a book, an entire book written about Deflategate, about Aaron (laughs) Hernandez, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, I tried to write about the plays when I write about those games and those moments. I really tried to zero in on plays that I thought were critical and revealed something larger at play. Like in 2003, the Patriots played the Denver Broncos on Monday night football and, and Belichick completely, you know, sends you know, the Broncos are in control of the game and the Patriots take an intentional safety, hoping that it would lead to a series of events that would win the game for them. And, and it did. And it was one of those glimpses of Belichick where he not only saw the game differently than everybody else in that these series of moves that, you know, if the probabilities were high enough for each of them, they would all end up working out. But he also just broke certain coaches. I mean, he broke Mike Martz in the Super Bowl in 2001. And he broke Sean McVay in the Super Bowl, you know, the last Super Bowl they won together. And, you know, that was one of those examples where he did it to Mike Shanahan, where Mike Shanahan just couldn't believe that Belichick had pulled off this series of events that ended up winning the game. And, you know, it was one of those games when I talked to Mike Shanahan about it, he was like, that game still bothers me. And you know, it's so long ago. It still bothers him. And you talked to, you talked to Martz and Martz still was, you know, upset about that. <laughs> that yeah, that absolutely. But um, I guess I mean, we're talking to Seth Wickersham, uh, author of it's better to be feared, a, a total must read. And even if you don't, really care about the Patriots that much. If you like the NFL, you have to read it. And even if you think you know everything, there's a lot of people like, as I said, I follow sports to nothing. And I, and you just pick up on every single page, something new, something you want to think about. Oh, I didn't know that. And I think that just fills in so many blanks. It's almost like playing the, uh, 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 of fortune, you know, and getting the, the vowels and the letters. It, it just fills in some pieces. I thought was really good. You mentioned at the end of the book, when Brady goes over to, Kraft's office and said, I'm, opt- I'm opting out of my contract. And Kraft, even then, even though after all the friction between everything and with the Jimmy G and the issue and they wouldn't give him a longer deal, Kraft thought that, that they could still work this out. And I guess mm-hmm. that was the point was like what Kraft, when push came to shove, he didn't try to make it work out with. I mean, there was a point where was, in his mind, he said, I'm going to choose Belichick over Brady. Yeah, it was an organizational decision to not invest in Brady guaranteed until he was age 45. I think that the Patriots wanted to keep him kind of on a year to year basis and, you know, be cautious about it. And Brady made very clear that he wanted to, you know, he thought felt like he'd earned that, that, you know, show of faith. And so when the Patriots, you know, opened the door for him to walk out, he was more than willing to walk out. And, but even so, even the night in March, 2020 on the onset of, free agency and also a global pandemic when Brady comes over to Kraft's house and says, you know, I need to talk to you about my future. Even then Robert Kraft was thinking that, you know, they were going to work out a contract, just the two of them, and it was all going to work out. And instead, obviously Brady told him, you know, that they weren't going to continue on together. That's amazing. Well, anyway, uh, Seth, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. The book, it's, it's Better to Be Feared. You can find it at any store, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online. Suggest anyone read this book. It was great. I spent the whole week reading it. Loved it. And uh, Seth, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you so much. Great stuff there from Seth Wickersham here on Iron Sports. Ira, what's going on in auto racing? Well, I, one thing about the interview that I thought was amazing, when he said the two people that should know Brady the best – that, that, that about not to underestimate him when push came to shove, they underestimated him because Brady goes <laughs> and wins the title for Tampa Bay. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> Just amazing. Uh, well, there was a Formula One race in Austin. It was the first Formula One race in, uh, in America in two years. It drew 150,000 fans. So I, I talk, talk about Formula One all the time. Uh, there was celebrities everywhere. Shaquille O'Neal, they usually have these models come out and give the trophies at the end. And they, you look at the pictures of Shaq carrying the trophy out and the racers are like, 
probably like mid five foot five, five foot six, five foot seven. And he's bringing the trophy out to them. He's so big. And it was just very good. It was a great, and the race was great. Um, Verstappen and, and Hamilton are competing for the championship, the two Mercedes and Red Bull. And it was always about, you know, where you pit the tires and those things. And Verstappen had, had older tires on because he had pitted earlier. And Hamilton then was about 10 seconds to go with about 10 laps or 15 laps to go. And it was catching him, catching him, catching him. And right with like three laps to go, you would hear the, the people say, you'll get him within three laps. They did. But at that point, Verstappen was able to hold him up. He was able to drive a little faster. And uh, what a great race. It was great that Verstappen, Matthew Verstappen ended up winning the race. Hamilton finished second. Verstappen leads in the photo and uh, standings. And they have five races left. Uh, and, uh, and then in NASCAR was in Kansas and Kyle Larson won his ninth race, race of the year on the 17th anniversary when Rick Hendrick, his team owner, uh, son passed away in a terrible plane crash with, uh, with uh, other people from the Hendrick motorsport team. And now next week they play, they go to, they race at Phoenix. Uh, in Martinsville, and then Phoenix is going to be the final race of the year to sign the champion. And a lot of the articles are out that uh, NASCAR struggled with some attendance this year, whereas Formula One goes to Austin. Now, it's only the race they have, but it was packed full of fans, and it was, it was super successful. And now we're going to have one, and everyone keeps talking about the Miami race in March of next year, which is going to be enormous. So, uh, But that was a, it was just interesting to see Formula One in Austin uh, on Sunday. And it went against football. Like, I'm watching football and had that in the background. It would have been great if, if they could you know, race it. And that's what in the March is not going to compete against football. So, uh, But that was exciting to see the end of the Formula One season and the end of the NASCAR season. Yep, and we are out of time. I want to thank Seth Wickersham so much for popping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.